So what a, a lovely section of scripture that we've uh, read, and Rachel, thank you for reading so well. And uh, it's one of those sections of scripture which, uh, in some respects, you could argue and say is difficult to understand. Uh, but I don't believe that's actually the case at all. Because as we uh, read the scriptures and take them at uh, face value as they're presented to us, and sometimes I think uh, we're the ones that complicate things, we're the ones that make it harder to really understand what is being spoken and what is being uh, 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 taught to us. And so it's important that uh, we come and we pray and that we hear God speaking to us. Now the theme of Paul's letter to the Roman believers has got to be the theme of the righteousness of God. We know for certain that it's not the righteousness of man. Uh, Paul makes it very, very clear that we are all sinners, and that's one of the things that we will be talking about in just a moment. But uh, it's certainly nothing to do with our righteousness. It's all to do with the righteousness of God. And perhaps the key verse that we could look at, uh, which would sum up uh, Paul's letter to the Roman believers, would be found in chapter 1 and verse 17. Chapter 1 and verse 17 it's one of those verses which is incredibly well known. Uh, many of us would have heard this uh, verse read. Those of us who have been going to church for a long time would have heard it read very regularly and very uh, often. Uh, we would also be familiar with it from our own reading. It's a verse that doesn't appear just here in this section of Scripture, but it appears in several other places as well. And we'll explain why that happens. So chapter 1, verse 17, For in the righteousness of God is revealed... From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And when we look at uh, that verse, and we, uh, uh, we as I say, we, 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 we know it very well. Uh, we understand it. Um, at least we believe we do. And this evening, I want to try and look at it and to be able to apply the teaching that we have for us. Now we notice there that it talks about the fact that it is written. It is written that the just shall live by faith. Now whenever we see this in God's word, whenever we see those words, we recognize that we turn to the Old Testament to be able to understand where those words come from. Because the Apostle Paul is writing the letter to the Romans, he's not able to turn to it and to look at it in that, uh, in that sense, but he is taking these words from somewhere very, very specific. And so he says it is written. And so we look in uh, the middle uh, um, column in our scriptures or at the bottom or wherever it is, and we discover that it's a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, this is one of the best-known verses in the Scriptures, and sometimes we forget this. Paul is quoting Habakkuk 2, verse 4, which says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. There's no other option. And sometimes that can confuse us because this is from the Old Testament and we've got this idea in our minds that there was another way that people could be saved. There was another option. But the point is, Paul is stating very clearly, there's no other option. There's nothing else by which we can be saved. The law will not save you. The sacrifices will not save you. 
And we were able to talk about some of that this morning as David uh, Johnston spoke to us. And as you read the whole of the prophecy of Habakkuk, you soon realize that in exactly the same way as Romans, the theme of Habakkuk, Habakkuk's very short little prophecy, is justification by faith. Now all this can come as a bit of a surprise. Habakkuk had great faith in God. As you read the three chapters in his little prophecy, you discover that he did. Even his name tells us something about what it was that was concerning to him. It means to embrace. It means to wrestle. And in that short three chapters, Habakkuk indeed wrestles with God. What is he wrestling with God about? He's wrestling with God concerning the fact that how was it possible that God could use a wicked nation such as Babylon to chasten his people, the people of Judah? How could God do this? And he's wrestling with this. And then he talks of faith and he says by faith and he embraces God and he clings to God and he clings to the promises of God. And friends, this is all we can do. This is very much the same that we see with Paul as he writes to the Roman believers. Paul is also wrestling. He's wrestling with the lack of faith that he sees in the Jewish nation. But in all these things, Paul clung to God. And we know why he's gone to Rome, don't we? He's facing imprisonment or execution. And he's nothing else to cling to but God. Knowing that it was only by faith in God that we could ever be justified to God. What does justification mean? It means, very simply, friends, to be made right. We've got to be made right with God. We know in our hearts that we need to be. But how is this possible? Now, when Charles Price came and spoke, uh, he surprised me over one of the examples he used uh, to try and explain and talk about um, justification. He used the example of uh, a very notorious um, prison or penitentiary uh, called Bellini Prison, Bellini Jail in the city of Glasgow. Now, if you know anything, if, if there's any Scottish people here this evening, please forgive the following comments. But Glasgow is a tough city. It's got two football teams, one for the Catholic side of the city and one for the Protestant side. And every Saturday morning, they have a bust up because that's the traditional thing to do. I think I'm right in saying that there's an average of 50 knife attacks to this day in Glasgow, every day, alone. It's a tough place. And Bellini Jail, there in the middle of the city, is absolutely notorious. And Charles Price was reminding us of the fact that when a man had been sentenced to death, and he's taken to the death cell in the middle of the prison, and he's held there until the date arrives, they take him out of that cell, they take him into the room next door, and it's the execution chamber where he is hanged by the neck until he's dead. 
and then the warder goes out to the front of the prison gates and puts a notice and you remember what Charles said was written on that notice the name of the prisoner so and so has been justified why has he been justified he's been put to death exactly right because the price the penalty has been paid and he's been justified and so this begins to help us to understand what it is that is being spoken of here. Paul in verse 16, the verse before verse 17 that we have read, a moment ago stated this. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? Could we ever be ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? No. And Paul made it clear he was not ashamed of the gospel. There was nothing that man could do that would be a shame to him because of what he stood. And yet sometimes we can be tempted in our lives not to stand for our Savior as we should do. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation. Wait for it to everyone who believes for the Jew first and for the Greek for everyone who believes and there's nothing to be ashamed about Jesus Christ is not for us to be ashamed of Paul is explaining that the gospel of the Lord Jesus the fact that Jesus came at Bethlehem into the world that he came of course the scriptures tell us why did Jesus Christ come he came to save sinners friends that's you and me and Paul states uh, to his young friend Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And just to make sure you understand, Paul says, and I'm the chief. And the reality is, is that Paul had history, didn't he? I mean, we sometimes forget the history of, the, of, of, of Paul. They say that the internet never forgets. Well, nobody forgot who Paul was. Uh, there's a character in the story of the conversion of Paul that I always feel a little bit of, of, of sort of a little bit of tension for, and that was this poor guy, Ananias, because suddenly Ananias is sent to see Paul. Uh, and, and, and Ananias is worried, and rightly so. I'd be worried. Because everybody knew who Paul was. Everybody knew what it was, was that was the driving force in Paul's life at this time, up until his conversion. And that was to round up people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, to break up families, to see some put to death, stoned to death. Paul is stood there whilst Stephen preaches his message. And graciously talks to those people and afterwards they lay their cloaks at Saul's feet and start to pick up the rocks and throw them at him. And Ananias says in Acts 9 verse 13, you'll understand if you've not fully appreciated, he says, Lord, I've heard, about, I've heard from many about this man. Absolutely he had. 
So Ananias says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And then Ananias says this, and you feel the pleading in, in his voice as he says it. And Lord, he still has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. You see, the authority that Paul had had not been taken away, had it? Back in Jerusalem, they probably didn't even know that Paul had been met by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Could you imagine Ananias, how he felt? You see, Paul started out as the exterminator, the terminator of Christians. And for Paul, it was personal. Always be careful with people that have a personal vendetta. Paul had made it his purpose to close down the church of Jesus Christ. It was his desire to lock up Christians. People who had come to faith in Jesus. People who had placed their trust, their hope and their belief in Jesus Christ. Paul had blood on his hands. And he was feared by many. But friends, all Paul was, was a sinner. A sinner that Jesus Christ came into the world to save. Through his life. And through his death on the cross. And of course, his marvelous powerful resurrection from the grave and this evening I simply want to remind us of a few things about justification by faith that we may not have understood or perhaps we've forgotten things that we need to know if we are truly people who are marked as belonging to God and this evening you might have doubts about that You've been coming to church all your life. You hope that all's okay. We sang in that hymn, didn't we? The one before, I think, about our names written on his hands. I was talking to a lady, and she said, I pray every night that my name's written in his hands. So I said, well, have you prayed and welcomed Christ into your heart? Have you called to him for salvation? Have you placed your hope and your trust in him? Do you believe in Jesus? Because if that's what you've done, you don't need to pray that your name's on his hand. Because it will be. If we are people who have been justified, if we've been made right with God, one, we will know it. Secondly, others will know it. Because they cannot help but see the change that is wrought by the living Savior living within us. Now, the Bible is very clear that in the New Testament era, salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We all know that. When asked for a show of hands, 
but we put our hand up, I'm sure. John 1 verse 12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, but born of God. What a beautiful verse that is. John's first child. Love, I love the gospel of John. I mean, I love the whole of scripture. But if I was really pressed to ask for a, for a favorite, if you like, it would be John's gospel. Because it speaks all the way through of all that Jesus has done for us. There's that beautiful spiritual dimension which just keeps on echoing and resonating in our hearts and our lives. And, and John, as he writes, he just says, look, here's the evidence. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus said. And this is what Jesus has done for you. And what you need to do is to open your ears, open your heart. If only you could do, wouldn't it be great if you could just plug sound into it? And you could hear with your heart as, as, as we need to all that Christ has done for us. And we can rejoice in that. We turn to Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Don't we get hung up on works? I was talking to, to Randy, where is he, with, the, with our evangelism team. And the number of times people have said, you know, it's what you do that matters. How could God ever turn me away? Yeah, I'm not like them. If God turned me away, nobody would get to heaven. Do you love Jesus? Who? Because we so often base it upon our works, what we think is right. For my grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you ever realize just how exclusive the Christian faith is? There is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what anybody says to me. I have to come back and say, do you know Jesus? Have you come face to face with Jesus? Is Jesus central in your heart and in your life and in the life of your family? And I have to say this today, in your church, we preach what? Christ crucified. There's lots of churches that preach. But ask yourself the question, what is it that they preach? So the outworking of these verses is clearly that there is indeed only one way to God. There is only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ and all that was wrought on the cross for us. Now this means, as I've just said, that Christianity is truly um, exclusive. <clears throat> <clears throat> as a family we went to Toronto and Emma who's uh, just nodded off at the front here oh sorry she's focusing that's fine Emma was given this uh, well this is what you were given right okay I just want to say if there's anybody who has uh, an influence with uh, with Islam here this evening I want to be respectful in what I say but this was a little brochure that was given to uh, Emma and she very kindly passed it on to me and it's just like the sort of brochures that or leaflets that we would give out to people uh, to talk about uh, the, uh, the Christian faith, to talk about what it is to know and to love the Lord Jesus. And it has uh, some interesting uh, titles. 
And if anybody wants to have a look afterwards, you're welcome to, but I'd like to keep it because I still haven't contemplated everything. Um, number two, a positive outlook on life. Well, we all need a positive outlook on life, don't we? Uh, number three, the concept of God. God is one and unique. God is all-powerful. God is the most high. God is perfect. Well, we have lots of agreements with that. Number four, emphasis. Both evidence of... Uh, emphasis is both evidence and faith. And then we come to number five, which is entitled Forgiveness of Sins. I want to just quote some of the stuff that's in here. Islam encourages a balance between hope in God's mercy and the fear of his punishment. Well, I'm glad it's a balance that it wants. Both of which are required to lead a positive and humble life. The leaflet goes on to say that we're born sinless, but have the free will to commit sins. God created us and knows that we are imperfect. Hold on a minute, you've just said we're sinless. And that we commit sins. But the key is how we react to committing those sins. Islam teaches that God is the most merciful and will forgive and pardon those who sincerely want to repent. The beautiful steps of repentance include being sincere, being remorseful, how many of us are not remorseful for our sins? You go into the world and talk to people and they've just got themselves involved in some terrible trouble and what do they do? They're remorseful. Oh, reframing from committing sin as well as having the intention of not to repeat it. Islam encourages a continuous process of self-development and self-purification. <laughs> How many of you fall into that category? You've been trying. Does it work? Doesn't work, does it? We try. Furthermore, God does, does not need to sacrifice himself to forgive sins, nor is anyone born into sin. Islam teaches that God is the most just and that each person will be held responsible on their own actions on the day of judgment, and each person is accountable as they have freedom of choice and intelligence to discern what is right and wrong. And you're stood before a holy God on your own. And you've got to come up with an excuse. I say this graciously. I am so grateful that I know and love the Lord Jesus who has promised that he will be my advocate and he will stand for me. And the first thing he will say is to his father, I know this person. They're mine because their name's written just here. Now, isn't that exciting? Don't you feel your heart raised and lifted already? Because instead of having the pressure of doing it all yourself and trying and giving money to the poor and giving alms and all the rest of it that this leaflet goes on to talk about, he's done it. He's done it. 
Could you imagine what the Apostle Paul would have said if he'd received this leaflet? What did he say? He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do not do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And stunningly Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thank God with all my being that he has welcomed me into his kingdom through his dear son who is my, the propitiation as Rachel explained for us. In Christ there is forgiveness of sin. In Christ, our hope is certain. In Christ, we have the assurance of salvation. We're not left wondering if we've done enough to please God. Isn't it interesting how the Muslim and many Christians, including people in church denominations who should know better resort to works for their salvation. But friends, there is a work that we are commanded to do. One work which God would have man to do. John 6, verse 29 our Lord Jesus admits that there is something to do. There is a labor, an effort of the will needed to do what God requires. And this is evident enough as soon as this great work is described. Verse 29 of chapter 6 of John's Gospel, our Lord states, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's it. But then you may well ask, well, how were people saved before Jesus came into the world? When he was born at Bethlehem? When he came into the world to save sinners? What was the way for them? Well, firstly, a common misconception, and we've touched on it already, is that the Old Testament way of salvation, uh, that the Jews were saved by keeping the law. But we know from the Scriptures that this is absolutely not true. The Scriptures don't contradict themselves. They tell us the truth. God is speaking. Galatians 3 verse 11 says, But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. Why? For the just shall live by faith. Again, Paul, here in Galatians, as well as Romans 1, is quoting from Habakkuk 2, verse 4. This was obviously one of his favorite verses in the Old Testament. The just shall live by faith, he says. Some might want to dismiss this passage as only applying to the New Testament, but Paul is actually quoting for the Old Testament. You can't do that. You see, salvation by faith, apart from the law, was an Old Testament principle, as well as a New Testament principle. Paul taught that the purpose of the law was not to serve 
uh, sorry, was to serve as a tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3 verse 24. And also in Romans 3 verse 20, Paul makes the point that keeping the law did not save either the Old or the New Testament Jews because no one will be declared righteous in his sight by what? Observing the law. Keeping the law won't do it. Well, we can't keep the law if we could, but we can't. Islam, and I would go as far as to say that any other religion or system or variation of the Christian faith has the same problem. They are about observing some sort of law, even if it is just the law of good and evil. Because that's what legalism does to us. The law was never intended to save anyone. The purpose of the law was to make us conscious of sin. And it does that job very well indeed. Most people know the Ten Commandments. If you speak to them here in the streets, they'll know that murdering people is not right. Committing adultery is not right. They know that telling lies is not right, even though there's a distinction between the type of lies that you tell. And if the Old Testament way of salvation was not keeping the law, then how were people saved? Well, fortunately... The answer to that question is easily found in the Scriptures. So there's no doubt as to what the Old Testament way of salvation and by default the way that we are saved from our sin and from death and from hell today. How you and I can live spiritually speaking. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that the Old Testament way of salvation is the same way of salvation that's contained in the New Testament which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But people continue to say, what about before Jesus? They didn't know Jesus. How is this possible? Paul's theme in Romans, as we've mentioned, is the righteousness of God and specifically that we are declared righteous by God. It's very important that we understand that. We'll look at it very quickly. Paul had proven in chapter 3 of Romans that all men are sinners. Sometimes today people need to be convinced of that. But we know that we are. Paul quotes uh, from Psalm 14, 53, 5, 104, 10, as well as Proverbs, as well as Ecclesiastes, as well as the prophet Isaiah. And all of that he quotes here in Romans 3. And then he says in Romans 3 and verse 23, and we know it well, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Did you notice that? All have sinned. There's no exceptions, friends. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Next, the apostle goes on to explain how sinners can be saved. And this is the good news for us this evening. The theological term for this salvation is justification by faith. We're made right with God through faith. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the definition that we'll use this evening. I read it again. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ on the basis of the finished work of 
Christ on the cross. Friends, that's it. There's nothing else we need. There's nothing else I can explain to you. Now, each part of the definition is important, so we consider it very carefully. To begin with, justification is an act. It is not a process. And sometimes churches can create processes. We love creating processes. You do this, you do that, and eventually you reach some sort of level at the end where you've met the requirements. It's like ticking boxes on a form. But that's not what the Bible talks about. We talk about confessing people. We talk about all sorts of different groups of people. But what does the Scripture say? This is what's imperative. And so often we'll just simply skip through and we miss the treasures and the simplicity. Somebody said to me the other day as I was talking to them about the gospel, it's too simple what you have to say. It's got to be harder than that. It's got to be tougher. There's got to be more involved. Do you want more? Why would you want to make it harder? <clears throat> Justification is something. It's an act of God, but it's also something that God does. Not man. No sinner can justify himself before God, even though we try. And we've looked at it before, Colossians 2, verse 6. As you came to Christ, so walk in him. I can't do it, is the reality. Can't save myself. But he can. I can't live the Christian life. If I try, I will fail. And people spot the hypocrites straight away. If you, if you, if you talk to a, a, a child, they spot the ones that aren't real. And do you know some of the embarrassing questions that children will talk about when they meet adults? They know if you're real or if it's a farce, a pretense, saying the right thing, going to the right places, As you came to Christ, so walk in him. Most important, justification doesn't mean that God makes us righteous. Now, just think about that for a moment. It's because he declares us righteous. You see, justification is actually a legal matter. God puts the righteousness of Christ on our record. And nobody else can take it away. He puts his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, on our record in the place where our own sinfulness was recorded. And nobody can change this record once God has intervened. Do not confuse justification and sanctification. Sanctification is a process whereby God makes believers more and more and more and more. And sometimes for some of us it takes a lot more than other people to be like Jesus. And the reason it's slow for us is because we're fighting to do it ourselves. Instead of surrendering all to him.
because he can do it and I can't. Sanctification may change from day to day. Justification never changes. When the sinner trusts Christ, God declares him righteous and that declaration will never be repealed. God looks on us and he deals with us as though, and this brings tears to my eyes, as though we never sinned. And that is so wonderful. And what a joy. And some of you are thinking to yourselves, wow. I'm thinking to myself, wow. The record is erased. God remembers it no more. Because he looks on us and he deals with us as though we had never sinned. And that's what it is to be justified. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that's impossible. How could a holy God declare sinners righteous? Is justification merely some sort of fictional idea that Paul created and put together that has no real foundation? Well, here in the last part of chapter 3 and then going on into chapter 4, as Rachel read to us, Paul answered these questions in two ways. First, he explained justification by faith, uh, chapter 3, 21 to 31. Then he illustrated justification by faith from the life of Abraham. Why Abraham? Romans 4, 1 to 25. From the life of a man who you could argue was not even Jewish. Well, he certainly wasn't when he came to faith. Paul uses the life of a man who lived before the law was given with Moses. And the staggering revelation is that Abraham experienced, wait for it, the same salvation that we experience in our lives. How do I know this? Because Paul explains it and he goes into great detail for it. Now we've got to be really quick because we've got four minutes to cover seven points and I'm sure you weren't expecting that so I think we might just take a few more minutes if we may. But this is so important friends, it really is and we do need to listen carefully. So I'll go through them very, very quickly. And uh, maybe we can expand them another time, um, but it is important. And so we look at these seven points. Justification explained, verses 21 to 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. What does the word manifested mean? It means revealed. Okay, you see it. Romans 3:21, literal translation. God had revealed his righteousness in many ways before the full revelation of the gospel. He'd revealed it in his law, in his judgments against sin, his appeals through the prophets there in the Old Testament, his blessing on the obedient, but in the gospel. Righteousness has been revealed. He says, as we read earlier, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And the characteristics of this righteousness are spelled out for us. Firstly, it's apart from the law, verse 21. Under the Old Testament law, righteousness came by man behaving. And guys, we can relate to this, can't we? You know, there are times when we're not very good. 
and there are times when we try to behave. And this is something that we've got to be so careful of because this is what the Lord does to us. It's simply, as Charles Price said, it house trains you. Who wants house trained Christians? Okay, they might be great on a Sunday, but what about the rest of the week? What about the things that are going on in their hearts and in their lives and the way they relate to other people and their relationship with God? House trained people. And we see a lot of this today. But under the gospel, righteousness comes by believing. The law itself reveals the righteousness of God because the law is holy and it's just and it's good. Romans 7 verse 21. Furthermore, the law bore witness to this gospel righteousness even though it could not provide it. Genesis 3 verse 15 <clears throat> The theological term is the proto-evangelium. And it's the first occurrence of the gospel mentioned right there in chapter 3 of Genesis. And when we discover that it continues the theme to be mentioned throughout the entire Old Testament, witness is given to, the sal to salvation by faith in Christ. The Old Testament sacrifices as the children of Israel celebrated the Passover. It was speaking of Christ. The prophecies, the types that we see so often in the Scriptures and the great gospel sections of Scripture in the Old Testament, such as Isaiah 53, you can't miss it. And all of this bore witness to this truth. The law could witness to God's righteousness, but it could not provide it for sinful man. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Back to Galatians 2 verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if the righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Why would he have gone to the cross if the law was able to do it for us? Thirdly, through faith in Christ. Verse 22, the first part. Faith is only as good as its object. All men trust something. Many of us trust ourselves. But the Christian trusts in Jesus Christ who will never let us down, who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. Law righteousness is a reward for works. And I'm telling you, I meet loads of legalists. It's a reward for the work that you do. But gospel righteousness is a gift through faith. Many people say, I trust in God. But this is not what saves us. It is personal, individual faith in Jesus Christ that saves us and justifies the lost sinner. James 2.19, even the demons from hell believe in God and tremble, yet this does not save them. Fourthly, for all men, verse 21 to 23, and I'm sorry we're rushing these, but you've got your Bibles. You can go home tonight and you can read this for yourselves. God gave his law to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, but the good news of salvation through Christ is offered to all men. Why? Because all men need to be saved. The scriptures tell us, Acts 17 verse 30, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why does God command all men everywhere to repent? Because he goes on to say this, the Apostle Paul, uh, sorry, uh, Luke, as, as he writes, he says, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to condemnation. Romans 3.23 again, For all have sinned, and all are coming short of the glory of God. You see, God declared all men guilty. We don't argue with that, do we? All men have been declared guilty. Why did he do this? So that he might offer all men his free gift of salvation. If you read the section of scripture that we have here, it is just one complete section. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. It's a wonderful section of Scripture, and we thank God that it is placed there so clearly for us. We go on and we talk about grace, verse 24. God has two kinds of attributes, absolute, what he is in himself, and relative, how he relates to the world and to men, to you and to me. And one of his absolute attributes is love. We wouldn't argue with that, and we can't argue with that. Why can't we argue with it? Because the Scriptures tell us that God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Well, just a few verses further on in chapter 4, 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. That's love. When God relates that love to you and me, what's the form it takes? It's very simply this, grace and mercy. God in his mercy does not give us what we do deserve. And God in grace gives us what we do not deserve. Verse 24, 25, at great cost to God. You see, salvation is free. There's nothing you can pay. You're not good enough. There's nothing you can do. But whilst salvation is free, it's not cheap. And the three words that express the price that God paid for our salvation propitiation, redemption, and the word blood. In human terms, propitiation means appeasing someone who is angry. You've forgotten to load the dishwasher or something. She's not happy. You know, you managed to put your dirty dinner plate on the top of the dishwasher, but you can't open the door and put it inside. I'm talking to guys here. The girls know what's being spoken of. And so you try to appease. Perhaps you buy a bunch of flowers. But this isn't what the Bible's talking about when it uses the word propitiation. Propitiation means the satisfying of God's holy law the meeting of its just demands so that God can freely 
forgive those who come to Christ. The word blood tells us what the price was. Jesus had to die on the cross in order to satisfy the law and justify lost sinners. Now, of course, you know the illustration that's best for that is the Day of Atonement. Two goats, one sacrificed, and the blood taken and sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat on the top. It covers the law, the tablets of law in it. And then the priest places his hands on the head of the other one and he confesses the sins of the people. And as you're in the crowd, you're thinking to yourself, well, I hope he doesn't forget mine. And then they send it off into the wilderness to take the sin away. In the Old Testament period, the blood of animals could never take away sin. It could only cover it until the time when Jesus would come and purchase the finished work of salvation. And we read there in verse 25 that God had passed over the sins that were passed. Why did he do this? Because Paul explains knowing that his son would come and finish the work. If this was not the case, then God just let these people off of their sin. And that broke the character of God. It broke his holiness. And he couldn't do that because he's a just God. I'm going to try and just close with an example to explain this. Um, doctor, uh, uh, concerning the fact that so many of us, it seems today, struggle with the concept of the free gift of salvation. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, um, who was actually brought to the Lord by the, or through the ministry of D.L. Moody from Chicago, and he preached his first sermon at the age of 13, and he was regularly preaching in churches all over uh, the southern part of England when he was just 15 years old. And he was trying to explain free salvation to a coal miner because he used to go around on missions, preaching the gospel. But the man just was unable to understand it. And he kept on saying to Dr. Campbell Morgan, he kept on saying, I have to pay for this. It can't be free. It's too easy if it's free. And so with a flash of divine insight, Dr. Morgan asked and he said to him, please tell me, how did you get into the mine this morning? The man replied, well, that was easy. I just got in the elevator and it went down half a mile straight into the earth. And then Dr. Morgan asked, wasn't that too easy? Didn't it cost you something? And the man laughed at him and said, no, it didn't cost me anything, but it must have cost the mining company a fortune to create an elevator to send us a half mile underground. And then the man saw the truth. It doesn't cost me anything to be saved, but it costs God the life of his son. And so lastly, we talk about perfect justice, 25 and 26. You see, God must be perfectly consistent with himself. He cannot break his own law or violate his own nature. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God is light, 1 John 1, 5. 
A God of love, and this can come as a shock to some of us, wants to forgive sinners. He can't help it because that's his character. But a God of holiness must at the same time punish sin and uphold his righteous law. So how is it possible for God to be just and the justifier at the same time? There's a conflict of interests. And Paul, here in Romans 4, explains it to us. He simply says, the answer is Jesus. When Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of the world, he fully met the demands of God's law and also fully expressed the love of God's heart welded together. The animal sacrifices in the Old Testament could never take away sin. But when Jesus died, he reached all the way back through history and time. And when he died on the cross, he reaches forward and he grabs hold of me and you. If you're prepared to meet with him and confess your sin and call to him, for your salvation. You see, no one, including Satan, can accuse God of being unjust or unfair because of his seeming passing over the sins of the Old Testament times. Now, friends, you can worry if you want this evening about Abraham, how he was saved, or Noah, or Rahab, and all the other people that are recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 11. But it's the same for us. And shouldn't you be more concerned about yourself? Some people spend forever worrying about these things when what they need to do is to stop and call to Jesus. And he will save you because he's died for you and because he loves you and because he wants you to be his child. He's done all that for you. Please, don't be fooled by the simplicity of the gospel. Don't be led off down a rabbit hole. Call to the Savior. Because Christ Jesus came into the world he was born, he appeared to save sinners and we all qualify. Thank you for listening and may the Lord bless us uh, richly as we consider.